Before we get into the show, a quick reminder to check out and subscribe to the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Each week, he's doing deep dives into breweries, talking with journalists covering the beer space, and unpacking a lot of what makes the beer industry so interesting. Find the Beer Edge podcast wherever you download shows. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. And this week, I'm talking about fermentation, kombucha, and more with Pete Holupka of Harvest Roots. But first, an invitation to check out BeerEdge.com for articles to sign up for the newsletter and more. And also a reminder to go and check out the This Week in Rauk Beer Facebook page and follow TW Rauk Beer on Twitter and Instagram for all kinds of smoked beer goodness. And we're able to bring you this show each week thanks to our sponsors, including NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been handcrafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. If you're a regular listener of this show, you might recall that a few weeks back, I was in Nashville for FunkFest, an event put on by Yazoo Brewing and Embrace the Funk. And when I was there, I participated in a few live discussions with brewers and spent a delightful 45 minutes with Pete Holupka. He's the co-founder of Harvest Roots Ferments in Alabama, and I wish we had recorded it. So in an effort to recreate the magic, he's here this week via Zoom talking about fermentation and building his kombucha program. From breaking it down and dispelling myths, he's thoughtful and methodical about his approach, and he's seen the company grow while he's bringing new fans to the bar top. Here's our conversation. I'd love to know where your early fascination with kombucha began and how it led to you opening up your own place that focuses on the beverage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it actually started uh, with my partner and business partner, Lindsay, um, uh, co-owner here as well, essential facet um, of the business. She actually studied um, uh, in Fiji and was an anthropology student there and was looking into the food and culture um, in a particular part of Fiji and discovered this sort of, you know, um, part of their life that maybe as, especially in the States, um, in the 90s, we weren't exposed to, which was in sustenance living, fermentation is an essential part of not only food preservation, but also nutrition, um, but also um, production of cultural beverages. Some and most, most of all have alcohol. So mm -hmm. she came back to the States and, you know, besides having immense culture shock, um, sort of became the, the uh, hippie girl at college <laughs> who like had everyone over to like make sauerkraut in a crock and made like this weird kombucha stuff on the shelf. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I guess 12, 13 years ago, 
like the major brand GT's kombucha was just hitting the shelves. So through her passion for fermentation, we started um, making ferments on the side of our farmer's market table. So I think it's a really distinct difference in how I'll talk about the formation of our company and its development from your other incredible viewers is that we started at a farmer's market. And that's because we were not only farming vegetables that no one wanted to buy and we weren't really that good at, but we had this very interesting product on the side of the table that our consumers let us know very quickly they wanted more of that than more crookneck squash. And uh, yeah, so I'm painting the picture that Lindsay planted this seed. And so just so I'm clear on this, so the, the ferment that you had onto the side was kombucha or it was sauerkraut or it was just fermented? Both. Okay. Yeah, both at the same time. It was vegetables we grew. Then we'd preserve them because we could make more money putting them in a jar. Um, there are some really eccentric stories about you know how we were bottling and processing uh, kombucha to start, but it'd be in these like, I mean, it, that's that. I really want to paint a clear picture that we we did not start with like a properly funded business. We were 24, 25 at yeah. the oldest, and we had a couple hundred dollars, and we lived on this farm for um, marginal price uh, uh, cost, and um, grew almost. It just total, uh, I don't even mean to be super condescending towards ourselves. It was just total naivete and like, just, we had nothing to lose. We didn't have children. We still don't have children, but just the, the kind of life that we were living lended itself to just, I don't know, showing up and learning about how to run a business. So instead of going to business school, we just started it. That makes sense. Um, when you were having the, I, I, I found it so interesting to hear, to, you know, hear, you know, with anth- uh, anthropology studies of, you know, different cultures, different fermented beverages, which, you know, I, I started thinking about, you know, some of my travels overseas and in South America and, and other places as well, uh, where, you know, there are locally fermented beverages that are not, you know, beer, wine, spirits in the way that we sort of think of them here. Um, as you've been immersed in, fermentation let's say have you think do do, do you think that like by and large like americans aren't paying attention to it in the way that other countries are and uh, fermentation in general yeah yeah i don't know if i'm phrasing the question the right way but i totally understand your question i think that that has been nearly a 180 degree degree turn from when we started thinking about fermentation and it just how food has changed in a grocery store and how intimately involved we were in seeing that happen by selling in grocery stores, selling a, you know, quote unquote health product, health beverage, health tonic in a grocery store, seeing those, how words have changed and how patterns have changed. And also being in the South, being in the South, seeing how, um, um, we have been, uh, quote unquote, behind on some of those trends, but how they sort of moved into our region. And having done this for a long time now, since 2013, 
we have seen a huge shift in not only the interest of wanting to taste interesting fermentations, but also the, the, the knowledge, the cultural and scientific knowledge that fermentation is important for our health and existence. And to see that come into the South, but also understand as people who've lived in other regions of the country, like I lived in New York City for uh, four or five years, uh, Chicago, but I, we also have plenty of um, friends and community in, uh, you know, for instance, in Berkeley, we've followed the cultured pickle shop and um, they've been open. It's like, <laughs> it's sort of like the, the Russian river of the, pickle and kombucha community. They're doing really interesting agricultural-based processes in, you know, umeboshi, like, uh, you know, fermented plums, green plums. And um, they have been doing that for about 25 years now, I believe. And um, it's been fascinating to see that uh, sort of become more pervasive, that interest. And it's almost... I would say anyone who was asked this question in the community, in the fermentation space and the, the community, it, they would attribute it in large part though, to Sandor Katz, who is a fermentation enthusiast, um, anthropological kind of perspective. Um, he's in Tennessee and really brought forth the sort of DIY culture of like, Hey, you can do this in your house. He comes from a, a queer background of like sort of agriculture and DIY culture, almost intersecting with punk culture. Um, and that really brought it into the fold for a lot of people, I believe. So it came from, you know, I can make this in a jug in my house to I can start a business or I can make a jug in my house of this stuff. And it makes me more passionate about other people doing it, which is a really cool thing about homebrew for beer as well. As you're, as you have your farm stand and as you're selling vegetables, but now you also have ferments on the side. Um, did you notice a trend towards the kombucha? Because it sounds like you could have gone into other areas as well. And I know that you're still involved in fermentation in other areas as well, but Harvest Roots, um, I know as a kombucha company, was that born out of that's where the farmer's market customer interests was most trained? Yeah, I believe it's multifaceted. I think there's an economics discussion that can be had, um, but I think that also um, people are more readily, they're ready to drink is a, it's quite simple. I mean, it's, people drink beverages faster than they eat a jar of sauerkraut. And I think that I don't know. I mean, I have some cousins. (laughs) 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 And uh, I think that putting beverage in glass bottles or in a vessel in general, it's, um, it became easier, but I do think there was an overall trend that, Kombucha was a really, uh, it became a, a, a trend in, um, you know, a place like Whole Foods. So there was a, you know, the numbers spoke for themselves, but vegetable fermentation was a really essential part of our business for many years. And um, I can expand on that as well. Um, yeah, please. 
Yeah, I mean, it's still sort of an emotional discussion um, because, you know, I, we, we, we used to produce, I don't even remember, like 15, 20,000 pounds of vegetables a year into kimchi and sauerkraut and such and sold them across three states and grocery stores and farmers markets. It was an integral part of our business to be supporting farmers, not only supporting farmers, but supporting them at scale buying like large quantities of produce and contracting and you know farmers were really patient with us we really our hearts were in the right place sometimes um that that was a really big challenge as as young business people and what we learned to be honest with you is um you know as as we always have at harvest roots we put our heart before the numbers we put our ethics and our our aspirations before the numbers, and it's it's part of our success as a company. It's core to who we are as a company, um, and how we operate. But we have had to learn how to balance both. Which to your, we've talked about this, you and I. We've talked about how I call it, you know, I call it the green bottle discussion, and the green bottle discussion. The green bottle discussion, absolutely. Okay. And we can also dive into, you know, the reason I'm on the podcast is because I've learned a lot from the beer community, not yeah. only microbially, but also trends in beer, it desires in beer, what consumers want in beer. And um, that's been really important for us. Um, so the vegetable fermentation has been on pause, especially after COVID. So the economic discussion, though, of people will drink something a lot faster uh, than eating a jar of sauerkraut, um, I, I get. And so is that where, is that how the business that you have today developed? But by seeing the market and seeing what people were gravitating towards with the high turnaround volume? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it can go, it's a lot, uh, that is, it's not that that isn't true. I think there's just, it's very multifaceted. Um, I believe that as a company, we've, we've, uh, it's core to who we are to remain really small and nimble, if not in the size of our company, in the mindset that we have. And as we've become a bigger company, I've realized that being nimble is not only important for innovation, but essential for innovating, but also that you can be small if your revenues are in excess of a million plus a year. You can have a mindset of being in a spot where you can pivot, where you can um, remain cognizant and have it be a priority that your service to the customer comes first and that your decisions for the service of the customer when that comes first, the customers come to you because they feel that. But I also believe when balanced correctly, that is the most effective economic decision to make for your company. So this balance of fighting for what you used to think your business was or what you want to do or what you think the customer wants and what the customer trends are showing you. So I think that vegetable fermentation in our business as a, as a wing, as a arm of our business, we looked at the numbers, 
we also sensed what our customers wanted and, you know, throw a little bit of a pandemic in there and you got a really great stew. Yeah. Um, so it sounds though that like being small and being nimble, especially when you're talking about fermentation as sort of the, the catch all umbrella can serve you fairly well. Like if you're, you know, a brewer and you know, you're making beer, you're a winemaker, you're making wine, like you're, you're sort of in a particular bucket that, that can be hard to, to, to get out of, but it sounds like you've been able to be a little bit more nimble, um, you know, follow passions, but also follow trends or follow customer desires just by being under the fermentation name. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's a really interesting point. I think that, um, I have, I have, there's chapters to this business at this rate though, you know, so I'm, I'm unpacking, um, I'm unpacking it as you ask me that question. Um, I think that, um, not only what kind of ferments we make was a question over this past eight, nine years, but it was also the kind of quality of fermentation that we make if it was, say, just kombucha. So we started the business by foraging almost entirely for our kombucha. Yeah. And, right, I mean, (laughs) wow, great idea. And I think it's it's interesting because of the low risk that we had at a younger age and um, low... um, sort of financial burden. We were able to do ridiculous stuff like make, um, you know, foraged root kombuchas and sell them at the farmer's market or like persimmon kombuchas and all of these eccentric flavors. We never even had made a ginger kombucha. You know, we'd never just made um, the basics. And there was an upside and an interesting aspect to that, but it very much feels like we and how we grew our business, we, we really felt like um, um, the, the one thing I have learned is that there's only, you know, there's only the pace at which you make mistakes. It's not a question of whether you make mistakes or not. So in business, positioning yourself to make mistakes almost faster and to create a culture of innovation is based in the philosophy and the company of what making a mistake means and what you do when you make a mistake. And that's where I become existential and on a, you know, fermentation related podcast about business is that I think that quite possibly what's more interesting than how kombucha is made, which you can Google that. What's more interesting is how do we run fermentation businesses that thrive are economically viable while serving the customer's, to the customer's pleasure while not compromising the sort of uh, goals that we had for even starting the business in the first place. I'll have more with Pete in a moment, but first a word of thanks to the sponsor who helps keep the mics hot around here. 
NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years to produce some of the world's finest hops. NZ Hops are like no others, unique in their flavors and aromas. Visit nzhops.co.nz to explore more. And now back to my conversation with Pete Holupka of Harvest Roots Ferments. I wanted to ask you, and now you're just telling me to go and Google it, but I, when you were talking about basic kombucha, um, you know, I, I learned from talking with you, you know, two weeks ago, you know, a little bit more about it and I've written about it a little bit, but it's still, you know, I, I, I think it's still foreign to a lot of drinkers in the U S and so since you're here and I don't have Google in front of me, um, and for the benefit of the listeners, let's talk about kombucha for a minute and sort of, you know, do some building blocks of what is it? I think is 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 you know the best first question that I can ask in this vein, and then I can build out to where you were headed. But let's let's get a little bit of context here. So, um, what is kombucha? I would love to provide your customers what they are desiring at this moment and answer that question for you. Um, I <laughs> I. Um, Kombucha is a fermented tea. So that's something that I think a lot of people forget is that the basis of kombucha is tea. Um, Just as if someone were to forget, I mean, it happens, just as someone were were to forget that the base of beer is grain. And of course, this happens um, at a certain portion of the customer base. um, And that's where education has become paramount. Um, in all kinds of fermentation, talking about this sort of base level of what something is, like on podcasts when you're being interviewed about your products. Um, so uh, the, the, essentially, you have what, what, we, what we have is a wart. We make essentially incredibly, or not incredibly, we make sweetened tea. Um, in kombucha, it's primarily uh, you use sugar um, and uh, at that point, you take that wort, you slide it into a tank, and we have our house culture that we pitch. And then for us, we are actually looking at what we consider a very long fermentation and something we're proud of, but something that we have to balance um, economically, which is fascinating, um, which is we have about a four to six week fermentation window for what is essentially a really complex, delicious soda. And that's been a really interesting balance of how do I communicate this, that this kombucha takes longer to ferment than a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but some beers or equally as long as some beers, but also that, you know, I'm not selling something with alcohol in it. And um, why does someone want this? What happens during a four to six week fermentation process, which is in a market which I, I'm, I'm not placing, um, I'm not poking at anyone for this, but, and I understand why this is happening, but in a kombucha industry, which is trying to shorten their turnaround time. And right, so, I am so not romanticizing. I, I was just going to ask like, what, what would be a normal fermentation time or at least, you know, by some other players, an acceptable fermentation time versus the four to six weeks that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to really be clear that I'm not trying to assert. Um, I'm trying to communicate that the end product of our fermentation time is making a, a, creating a product that we really love. 
Yeah. And that no, if I'm, someone's I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get you love. to start like a kombucha, you know, uh, street <laughs> fight or anything else like that. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that um, traditionally, and these things are changing rapidly as, you know, Coke and Pepsi and also smarter and more innovative techniques are entering the field and cutting these fermentations by three, four times. Um, I would say that it's generally people talk out loud about like two weeks, two okay. weeks ish. And um, you know what, if that creates a product that they're proud of and that their customers enjoy, that's fantastic. And um, that kind of open-mindedness is something that um, we're also investigating as well. So after that tea, the kombucha ferments for X number of weeks, what begins to happen is there's a gentle yeast attenuation. Um, and in kombucha, we don't, in my opinion, um, I'm at this time in my career, I'm not interested in really healthy yeast because I don't want to create alcohol. I want the right amount of yeast. And that environment is controlled through several variables, um, namely pH and temperature, but also the volume by which you pitch into the tank. So we can think about this like a sourdough starter. Mm -hmm. um, and through that, through those methods, um, just like any other kind of fermentation, um, we lead up to a point where bacteria begins to um, develop and create what honestly in a lot of brand, uh, a lot of traditional kombucha and also homebrew um, can be really sweet, but also acetic distinctly like ACV apple cider vinegar kind of back yep. of palate. Um, it creates sort of a lack of drinkability in my opinion. Um, and we're, we really like to create a lighter product. Um, we don't use black tea in our flagship brands. We tend to use uh, green or oolong tea, which tends to be more floral um, and in my head, I would liken it to the, when I drank alcohol, I really just wanted like 3.8. I wanted the most unsellable, most stubborn beer ever. I just wanted like <laughs> three to 5% gris grisettes. Yeah. And, no, you're talking to the right um, show here. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, I liken that lighter, more delicate floral grassy flavor to my background and what I, drank and studied in uh, the beer community, but also the wine community and cider community. Um, and I want something that is drinkable. And that's why we have a tap room. And that's why that tap room is still open is because we make kombucha that is enjoyable to drink one to even a third cup um, in while sitting down. So, we're talking about process and we're talking about what it is. And I can't help but notice that you have not yet used the one word that I have long associated with kombucha and that you recently told me, um, you know, I, I asked you about this when, when I saw you in Nashville and, and you were pretty quick to dismiss which, uh, which I, I, I appreciated in the moment. Uh, but for the benefit of the listeners, um, let's talk about SCOBY and what it is and why we all think about it too much when it comes to kombucha. Yeah, I think that the SCOBY is cool. And I believe I said this um, 
to you in Nashville that it's a very cool, um, I believe in the power of fermentation is like a human cultural tradition. And I am not on board to just dismiss something um, in that regard. Like the SCOBY is this, this like artifact of this process that like people share. It reminds me of the, the beauty of like seed sharing and saving, you know, this, this innate kind of desire to keep a culture around and I could talk for the rest of the podcast about this, as this is where both me and Lindsay find fermentation most interesting. Okay. Um, however, as of October 19th, 2021, 11.29 a.m., I am of the opinion that on a commercial level, the SCOBY doesn't do as much as the beautiful cultural association we have with it entails. And that on a home scale, the SCOBY might be more important than if I'm making, you know, hundreds and hundreds of gallons at a time. And what is most important about um, uh, making kombucha is actually the, the amount of uh, cultural pitch. Think of the sourdough starter. Okay. That is what's important. And the SCOBY is not the, I, at this moment, I do not believe it's the sourdough starter. I believe that this, the SCOBY is a helpful tool in commercial production to drop the pH. Um, and it's great for the SOP and, uh, it's awesome for a HACCP plan. Um, and I also believe that the culture that you're developing, which by the way, takes many years to develop. Yeah. The culture that you're developing needs that SCOBY to interchange oxygen and carbon dioxide in the kombucha. So the SCOBY lets in a certain amount of oxygen to the liquid as kombucha is fermented aerobically, which means open air, mm -hmm. while the SCOBY at the same time also releases CO2. So it's this hybrid anaerobic aerobic environment that many kinds of brewers have many different kinds of techniques on how they deal with needing oxygen, but also limiting oxygen. Okay. So why, so why do you think though that it, it, is it just an easy marketing term that people can remember? Is it just different enough that it, like, that's why it's getting the attention, you know, like I understand where you're coming from, but it's just like every conversation I've ever had about kombucha has always been about the SCOBY and it's, you know, people seem to either not grasp it or it's just like a small piece of knowledge that somebody can hold on to to sound vaguely knowledgeable. Sure. I mean, I think it's at a home scale when you're making a gallon jug, that is really important. Yeah. And that's totally, totally legit. Um, I also think that it's something, like I said, that can be shared. It's yep. something that, you know, a, a kid can look at it and think their, their mom or dad, like makes the weird, their crazy hippie, aunt makes the weird like tea on the counter in the corner next to the microwave in the shade or like in the cabinet. Yeah. And there's this weird mushroom floating on the liquid. I'm, I'm very okay with, at, uh, with how people connect in that regard. And I think that there is something in kombucha that's happening 
that we'll see more and more. I mean, there's been uh, a lot of producers releasing in 750 milliliter champagne bottles recently. Um, there's people just caring more about tea, including us yeah. uh, doing both of those things. There's almost like, dare I say this sort of like third wave <laughs> sort of like uh, uh, n- sort of new perspective and understanding of like, look, there's this like very uh, NA or LA producing soda that has very interesting complexities that sometimes we can liken to uh, wine characters or it, 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 it um, intersects with the orange wine, the natural wine trends, it intersects with the NA, you know, sobriety, curiosity, it intersects with the fermentation interest of our culture, it intersects with the health um, interest of our culture, it intersects with low sugar soda alternatives. Um, it's, it intersects with seltzer. So the example, I think it's intersecting with a lot of things. Okay. You mentioned your house culture earlier, uh, and then, you know, and, and good house cultures do take a long time to develop and, you know, show up in different ways. How have you gotten yours to where you want it? And what are some of the characteristics of your house culture? Like if, 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 if yeah, I'm drinking absolutely. your kombucha, I'm like, all right, that's Pete's. Like, I get it. Like that's. I have some really uh, supportive home uh, beer, fast uh, beer nerd friends um, who flatter us when like, you know, they say they can taste our culture and uh, it tends to be, especially because of the oolong tea that we use uh, frequently. We make other kinds of tea fermentations like pu'ers mm-hmm. and um, black teas, very, very cool, high-quality teas. Um, but our oolong tends to be this, like I said, this grassy, floral, almost grapey. Um, it has like a white grape tinge. Um, and the way that our culture flocculates during fermentation which uh, means that these, the, the sort of uh, floating uh, sediment and yeast uh, falls out during fermentation. And that's before it hits the bright tank. So there's this clarity and um, drinkability to our kombucha that happens. It's not muddy. It's not that sort of brown um, countertop kind of vibe. It's very delicate. And, um, I do think it's, um, it's been nurtured by stress. It's been nurtured by ignorance and naivete. Um, it's been nurtured by, you know, circumstance and not knowing any better, but it's also been nurtured by understanding, um, and, you know, possibly why I'm on, um, this podcast is that, um, that I understand how to manage a home or I understand how to manage a culture because of um, my experience working in beer and also working on my homebrew and Mm -hmm. loving and being passionate about mixed culture fermentation. So um, the sort of, if anything, the characteristics that I wanted, I just chased them over the past many years and um, it developed to be something that we really care about. Okay. So the other part of it too, and I was, I was drinking a lot of your kombucha uh, down in Nashville of the, you're saying you're not trying to do, you know, just the basics, just like sort of like what's out there. 
and you had some really fun and I, and I, and I, I, I dare say thoughtful flavor combinations that I, I, I imagine stand out on shelves one, um, two, but, but sort of help me understand and sort of change the notion of what kombucha could be. Um, or has been at least in, 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 in my mind. So can we talk about recipe development and, you know, after you have your base, what you start, wh- where your creativity takes you and ultimately leads you? Yeah, absolutely. We can talk about that. <laughs> well, so, I mean, um, yeah, where does it start? Yeah. Uh, so we have what is primarily our flagship base and, you know, I, once again, I came to kombucha with like, man, this is, this is my blendery. You know, this is my, um, this is my IBC tote that I'm receiving. Um, and I'm, I'm blending this down. So one of the things about our products is we, we blend, um, almost every batch, not every batch, but when it needs blending, we blend it because every tank tastes different. And uh, that obviously comes from my interest in beer um, Mm -hmm. and my interest in the beer community um, and drinking Lambic and drinking uh, mixed culture ales. Um, But yeah, just the fact that that is a, creates a product that's greater than the sum of its parts. And that's the first start. So, I mean, I think caring about the tea that we use is essential for creating the product that we want. And after fermentation is done, I'm happen to be standing in front of three fermenters for a holiday bottle release that is purchasable online um, that will release uh, hopefully around December one. So people should stay in touch about that um, okay. on our Instagram, um, Harvest Roots Ferments. Uh, I'm standing in front of a tank of Puer, which is a um, tea that is uh, in uh, created. They create a cake like almost like a cheese wheel of the tea leaves and it's uh left to age and further ferment and oxidize um for at least three years in its aged form and uh so a lot of times i am tasting i don't know what that's going to taste like because it's off of a 400 plus year old tea tree and i want to taste what fermentation creates in that process. Now that's more of a luxurious process for me um, at yeah. this rate and more, more of a responding to the product kind of thing. Um, but in the other parts of the company where I'm using our base oolong or uh, green teas, um, I'm responding a lot to just agricultural abundance um, from our farmers, from the markets. Um, so the seasonal sort of rotations like we just made um, a golden beet um, uh, kombucha with the juice of baby ginger, as well as the ginger stems itself. So okay. those are both from our friends. Um, so there's the agricultural response, but then also the sort of um, curiosity about, you know, how best do I apply for uh, good for this podcast? How best do I apply um, hops to the process? Yeah. Um, so we're pretty, pretty well known for dry hopping our kombucha here. Um, and yeah, that actually t- took a little bit longer to figure out than I thought it would. Um, it wasn't as simple as just putting hops at the end of fermentation. How, how, I mean, so how, where'd you land on, on, on it with that? 
Like what, what, yeah, what were the absolutely. trial and errors and, and what were the flavors? Like if you were just adding them at the end, um, like a dry hop, how, how were those flavors? Not what you wanted them to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that the first thing I did was like, okay, can I draw, like what point can I dry hop kombucha at? And like our hops, <laughs> are, you know, are the, you know, thousand plus year history of hops accurate? Do, are they antimicrobial, antibacterial? And they're like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, wow. That just like halted my kombucha totally, you know, like, so yes, that is accurate. And they do have that, um, uh, attribute. So I had to figure out how to, um, at first it was really, at first it was almost this kind of game like, okay, like people were putting four, God, I don't even know what it is nowadays. Four pounds a barrel of hops, eight. I mean, what, I mean what is it at now? It's I've, I've seen it a little bit more than that. <laughs> okay. I, talk, cool. I so talked to some guys who were doing 13 pounds, but you know, that's, that's so dope. They can afford that. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't think they could. I think it's. Uh, I think that. Was, I think that was a one-off, and maybe never again. That was a rent house in uh, in Arizona a couple of years ago for a beer festival. I actually remember that. Um, I think it was from you. But uh, yeah. so yeah, I, I, we're at uh, probably about one point five pounds a barrel, and I wanted to taste how kombucha and how acidic, how you know, acidic uh, kombucha would extract hop flavors. And um, I now have a process of, um, I've never actually said this out loud, but maybe it's not even, it's sort of the only sort of idea that I sort of kept close to my chest this whole time, but I needed to create a different kind of environment for the hops. And then I have to move that environment over to the finished kombucha. And the conditions of the kombucha that I have to dry hop are different of that than that of the finished product that I blend them into. Okay. And that's informed by, that's informed by pH. That's informed by how much air they're exposed to. Um, it's informed by how many hops I use. So we work up to like three pounds a barrel for hops at this rate. So our flagship, we have a core brand that is a, Pretty honestly, when it came out, it was funny because it was a direct response to beer. You know, I wanted to make something, like I said, I'm very inspired by beer. Um, I'm inspired by the dialogue. I think it's a great analog for us. And uh, it's Galaxy Citroen Mosaic, which at the time was, you know, it was, it's like, it's from my heart and it's genuine, but it's, there's a little bit of humor to it, which is like, you know, also my art background. You know, it's like, yes, I take myself very, very seriously, almost too seriously but I never want to lose the humor, the sort of, uh, the, you know, the punchline yeah. uh, in what I do as well. So you pay attention a lot to beer. Um, and I was struck by something that you said earlier when, when you started talking about some of the big soda companies getting involved in kombucha. And it seems like you're running your own race where there are some well-established national brands out there. There are some other places. And I think that's what by and large, uh, most of us who are not regular kombucha drinkers are, are, are familiar with, um, as larger players get into it, does that make your job harder or easier or does it not matter to you what they're doing? 
Um, I think that I have to really and honestly do both. I know that's, you know, it, I really have to. I mean, I think that I, we cared way more before we had a retail storefront opportunity um, because we were competing on those very shelves. But yeah. I just feel like I sort of did also, Lindsay and I had to like tuck our heads down, put our shoulder down and just like, okay, if people don't want to drink this, that means it's not good enough. And that's where we start. It's like, if we make something so good that no one can not drink it, then nothing else matters. And that's like a very important mindset that I uphold. You know, I don't, I don't just take it personally that no one, our sales are low. I'm like, well, what are, what are they not getting? And sometimes it's not ingredients or quality. Sometimes it is, um, you know, how many drinks at a, at a brewery, people sit down and have, I don't know, five, six plus pints on a uh, one to, you know, one pint or six, seven, eight, who, who knows? Okay. Here, the first thing we noticed was like, okay, cool. Like three cups is like, uh, that's a lot. And that's something that you, we didn't know. There was not other tap rooms where we're like, oh, oh, what are they doing? You know, we didn't, we didn't have Sierra Nevada. We didn't have Russian River. Um, we really were writing our own plan. There's, there's one other tap room in the Southeast, yeah. uh, two, two other tap rooms at, at, when we opened, that is. So there's not some like business plan for this. Yeah. Um, so it really came or down roadmap, to, yeah. right, right. And even just the simple stuff. So that's why I was in beer. I mean, I joined Milk the Funk. I started asking questions for my homebrew, but then I was like, oh my God, Lindsay, this is going to bring our kombucha production to another level. Now I know what, you know, different lactose strains do. And I know, understand what pH informs and all of these technical things, but um, also the community itself. So, I mean, that's why when we spoke in Nashville, I was like, man, we have bottle releases. No, I, that's not, that's a beer thing. I, that's not a kombucha thing. Yeah. So we'll have bottle releases and have like small lines up to really large lines. We had a 420 bottle release and there are 50 people lined up outside. And it's, it's that, that's an important part of the puzzle. You can make the best product, but there's other elements to being an artist. And I think that's what's hard for artists to understand including myself. Yeah. As, as you think about though, because it's interesting you are, and I know we're on a beer podcast, but um, talking about the beer space as more and more drinkers become cross drinkers and try to find different uh, you know, there's, there's different occasions, there's different times of day, there's different moods where, you know, sometimes it calls for beer, sometimes it calls for a cocktail, sometimes it calls for, you know, wine, whatever. Um, knowing the beer world and the beer industry in the way that you do, and obviously being you know, on the forefront of the kombucha world, where do you see the two intersecting or how do you see the two complementing each other? for drinkers. Yeah, absolutely. I think what, that's what I really fell in love with, like going to festivals like Funk Fest with Brandon and Embrace the Funk and being invited to um, 
uh, Fauna Flora's State of Origin Festival for a couple years before COVID. And we go and visit Chase at American Flair every year. I mean, these are our people. It's not, you know, I, I'd always looked up to them and still do, but they're, they're our, you know, ferment cohorts. There are people that we talk to about business and talk to about equipment, um, yeah. little animals in Johnson City. Um, you know, yeah, I Chris could just Cates, go on. Yeah. And absolutely. And um, so I think the main intersection and the train that I jumped on was seeing that even at these beer festivals, what people are really passionate about is fermentation. Whether or not they maybe even were seeing that picture yet. I think the more mature drinkers and more mature enthusiasts are, are there to taste the cheese that Embrace the Funk sets up at Funk Fest, just as well as the kombucha, you know, just as well as the hot sauce that was probably at the barbecue table. So I think that it's a, it's a desire to, it's like when, you're, when you like food, you don't like one kind of food. You eat all kinds of food because you like food. Yeah. And I think that that's where, that's the train I jumped on with beer. I was like, dude, these people just like delicious things that are almost always fermented, you know, if they're, um, and I can connect the dots of, yes, there's micros in kombucha that also make delicious mixed culture beer, but in the end, how does it taste? And, yeah. and if, it, if it doesn't taste good, then it, you're not going to be able to communicate anything. We were talking about this a little bit of how you can get new people to join the fold. And I'm hoping that everybody who's listening to this is now going to be curious if they haven't been already about, you know, trying kombuchas, specifically yours. Um, but when you have to have those conversations for education, when you're when you're looking to, you know, try to get somebody to to taste it for the first time and experience it for the first time. Um, how do you walk them through that, especially now that you have a tap room? you know, where you can be face to face with people. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm thinking back to like when I first started drinking beer, you know, my 21st birthday, I walked into a local brewery, uh, had an IPA cause that's what was recommended to me. And I choked it down cause I didn't understand hops or bitterness or anything. And, you know, now I love West coast IPA, but you know, it, it, it took a little bit of a leap of faith for me and also, you know, the help of the bartender to start to begin that understanding so when it comes to kombucha i guess how do you have that conversation yeah i think that there's um the first rule we have for our customer service which we have unparalleled levels of customer service up front um it is a core tenant of our company and anything less than perfection is is frowned upon um and i don't, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's very important for us um, because customers keep this business open. They keep, customers provide us the opportunity to continue doing this weird shit that we do. And we really try and remember our, remind our team that all the time and uh, remind ourselves that as well. Um, so, but that being said, honestly, the first thing, um, sort of a, uh, ironically, um, is that we don't, we're not over here we're, we're not ministering this. This is, we're not, we're not um, evangelicals and we're not going to beat anyone over the head that they, they, they have to, or should like this, but we teach and educate our team to find that one moment. And after years of kissing babies, shaking hands at the market, <laughs> Lindsay and I are absolute 
ex- expert in understanding almost the patterns of thought. It's just, na- it's our natural state at this rate. Like, oh, I've never had kombucha and it's a 65 year old man from rural Alabama. I go about that differently and educate how to go about that than if it's a 25 year old beer nerd who um, has a Refren shirt on and shout out Refren beer blendery. And Look at um, you dropping the Jersey, at least for now references. The homies for sure. Um, so different people, different strategies. And I had a, a, a editor of a magazine in the other day who I know is an epic foodie. I'm like, dude, I'm not giving him a ginger kombucha, even though he probably ordered some and it's like our lager, it's stable, it's perfect, whatever. I'm like, dude, check out this fresh celery kombucha that we have Asian pears in. You know, so it's, 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 in a, it's a very customized um, um, sort of improv thing that we do with our customers. Okay. Well, knowing our demographic of this show then uh, and who listens to us the most, talk to me like I would be a 65-year-old man from rural Alabama. <laughs> so, uh, hey, it's John, our number, yeah, it's our shop, number one demographic. Right, right. Welcome to the shop, but it's so nice to have you here. And you're just like looking at the menu. Your, your, uh, your brow is furrowed. I'm like, I'm here for you, bro. I'm got you covered. First off, it's like, this is not pretentious shit here. This is a sour soda. It isn't a wine glass. You are not an idiot. We are here to care for you, man. And I'm like, um, uh, I'd be like, do you drink kombucha? Yes or no. And then we'd go to no. Okay, cool. Do you like ginger soda? Yes. There you go. Just make it as simple as possible for them. It's a okay. vulnerable moment for a, cu- a customer, right? You need this, this idea of like, you need to anticipate their needs down to they want to be empowered with their own decision or they just need a decision made for them. So that's what I speak of when I talk about customer service. You need to vibe on what they want from the moment. And um, yes, I drink kombucha. Okay, what kind of kombucha do you drink? Oh, the, the green one at Whole Foods. I'm like, GT's, uh, the green spirulina one. They're like, oh, that's it. I'm like, absolutely. I know every kombucha at the grocery store and I taste them all the time because I need to know what you're drinking to be able to sell you my product. So, okay, cool. You like that kombucha? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, okay, well, you're in luck. This is all going to be delicious to you or even better than your current kombucha drinking experience. Can I recommend one or two of our flagship flavors? Absolutely. Okay, cool. If you love ginger, you should get the ginger kombucha. We also have a really cool sort of N.A. pale ale kind of tart, hoppy kombucha vibe, if you like that kind of thing. And then for our seasonal batches, we have these really cool reactions to our local farmers and some forage stuff. Um, And we also have stuff with even hemp in it and um, providing them Honestly, I wouldn't provide a third. That would be a mistake. I want to offer them two from each category of our menu and then work from there. So what's interesting to me, and I love that approach, right? Because you did just make it completely accessible uh, as, as, as I'm listening to you and friendly. And you use the word pretentious. And 
for for some reason, I, I think kombucha, maybe it's the association with whole foods or maybe it's the association as, you know, a healthy alternative or, you know, you had to really sort of be in the know to get it or, you know, to, to understand it, I mean, um, or at least that was sort of the way that it was presented to me early on. Um, removing some of that and making it much more accessible. Is, is there a potential for the category to grow beyond where it is now? Yeah, I think there's potential to grow. I try not to focus on that anymore. I just like, don't, um, I don't even necessarily mean like your specific business, but just like kombucha in general. Yeah, it's still growing. It's growing rapidly. And, um, I think that the, the, the demo is changing. I think that there's like more and more tap rooms opening. Um, but I think that it's sort of, I've, I've always been baffled by like who the hell wanted, I don't do this six days a week for something to be an alternative. I don't do, and I, I do sometimes when I, I deploy it, uh, gracefully and with care, but I also tell people, I'm like, if you don't like what you choose, I'll just pour you another one. Cause I don't, I don't work. I, I care. We care here. And I guarantee you that you're going to love what you order. And if you don't, I'll take care of you. And you know, there is a sort of side of me. It's like, I, I don't work five, six days a week on this to make it something that people don't want to drink. And, um, and I don't mean that in a smart ass way. I just genuinely mean, I like, we put our, our heart into it and we care we're, we're artisan fermenters. We're people who love food. And, um, I think that that's, we can look at the demo, the, the sort of industry overall, but also sometimes we have to assess the worth of looking at an industry that we don't have a roadmap from anyways. Yeah. And that as innovators here, we want to do something different. So what's there to look at sometimes? Like there's, there's less to look at when you're trailblazing. And I think that's what trailblazers, that is the, the, the double-edged sword of trailblazing itself. That's the double-edged sword of innovation is, you know, people not understanding what you're doing. And there's so many examples of this in the beer realm that um are at once um you know we you want it you don't want an example to be at anyone's expense but yeah people who have stuck on and built new you know tens of millions of dollars new brewery um and grown over the past 20 years there's billionaires there's people who've had to close um there's varying um examples of what it looks like to be a trailblazer in an industry. So I think at some point we sometimes just have to put our head down and focus on making a quality product and taking care of the customers that we have and that care for us. Yeah. And they feel that. You said it earlier, uh, just remind us one more time, uh, when people want to know what you have going on, uh, over at Harvest Roots, uh, uh Harvest Roots, um, what's the social media? Where, where do they find you? Yeah, I feel like uh, right now as a small company, we keep Instagram lit. Um, we don't have a marketing team. It's just me mainly. And you can find us on Instagram at Harvest Roots Ferments. Um, and 
um, that'll be the best place to stay in touch. We do, we're shipping a holiday uh, three pack. Um, actually, it's going to be three 750 milliliter champagne um, bottles of kombucha made with three different mm-hmm. incredible teas that we're um, pairing with native Alabama trees. Um, okay. So each kombucha will feature a specific forage tree element, and that is will be purchasable online. That's probably the best pitch I got for you. All right. I, I, I love that you're, you're, you're a natural salesman. Um, <laughs> we covered a lot in a, in a, in a short period and I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So, um, I hope you'll come back on soon and we can, uh, dive into running a small business and go beyond, um, you know, just the liquid in the glass, but, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun drinking, drinking your kombucha, uh, down in Nashville. And I'm looking forward to, uh, trying more of it down the line. And, you know, I, I, I dig what you're doing. So, um, thanks for being on the show this week, Pete. John, thank you so much for your time, bud. Uh, it's nice hanging out with you here in Nashville and, uh, we'll talk very soon. I got to say, if you are curious about his kombucha, I would encourage you to give it a try. The flavors and the layers have been on my mind since I first sipped them a few weeks ago, and it made a really positive impression. Are you drinking kombucha? What else besides beer is in your glass these days? You can email me and tell me. I'm at John Hall. It's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at BeerEdge.com, or you can talk with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And of course, Beer Edge is all over social media most of the time, at The Beer Edge. And if you love smoked beers, and of course you do, a reminder to check out the This Week in Rauk Beer group on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TWRaukBeer. And if you're interested in advertising, please reach out to Liz Melby. She's at Liz at BeerEdge.com, and she'll let you know all of the information. And speaking of that, this episode was made possible by the support of NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd and learn more. One last reminder to go to BeerEdge.com to see all that we have going on, including the Beer Edge podcast hosted by Andy Crouch. And Steal This Beer is also a podcast that I'm on most weeks with new episodes every Monday. And of course, the BYO Nano podcast on the 15th of every month. If you're paying attention, yes, I did lose my space on the page for just a moment. But as for this show... Nate Schweber, he does the music. Jeff Quinn designed the logo. And I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday. And that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>